Welcome to another episode of On Balance. I hope that I do this conversation justice. I sat down with the incomparable Nicholas Fox Weber, the director of the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation and founder and president of La Corsa, a nonprofit organization devoted to medical care, education, and the arts in isolated villages in rural Senegal. Join me and Nick for a rooftop conversation overlooking the Atlantic. The Islamic call to prayer in the background and a shared meal exploring the life of a man, spirited as a youth, measured and poignant as a man, unafraid of the unknown and desperate to make the complex meaningfully simple, an intimate portrait of humility and passion. Enjoy. Sent a representative here, and we knew that if we qualified, we could get a container of material worth half a million dollars if we would pay for the crating and shipping, which was $20,000. And the representative went with us to hospitals here in Dakar, where we work, to hospitals in Tambacounda, and to regional medical centers. And at the end of one week, she said, you don't need one container of material. I've noted the needs of each of the places we've gone to you need three containers of material. So for example, in a military hospital here in Dakar, there was one blood pressure reader for the whole hospital. That was it. And we were willing then to pay the $60,000 to get the three containers here. But we had a real challenge, Rod, because um, unfortunately, they could have been liable to major customs charges. And we were a nonprofit giving to nonprofits, but still it was known that they could be subject to charges. So I found myself, you know, meeting the right people to meet the right people so that I could meet with the Minister of Health. And she signed um, a subvention arrangement whereby our organization never had to pay customs fees because I could find half a million dollars worth of material, but I certainly couldn't find anyone to pay the import duties sure. on, on that sort of material. So and I want to, we'll stand this thread, but I want to get to know sort of the, the early years of your life and just, because I don't think that people, I mean, maybe they are, maybe, maybe you were sort of born with this gene of being able to solve really big complex problems and understand the global market is it, it, not a chessboard, but you just understand how you, you understand what pressure points exist. So are you a philanthropist? Are you an architect? Are you uh, just simply a problem solver? Like how do you at this stage of your life think? Well, philanthropist would be much too grand a word for okay. me. And it suggests amounts of money that I don't have. Um, what I'm someone who was brought up by a painter and a printer who were people with wonderful human values and they were people who enjoyed life a great deal. We were just simply, my sister and I were simply brought up to the understanding of the situation of others. When I was 13, I had gone to um, a very 
wonderful progressive summer camp. And my mother said, Nikki, you need to realize that not everyone in the world has the privileges that you have in West Hartford, Connecticut, and it's summer camp. So I was sent on a trip to Mexico, 45 teenagers. And of course, the main objective was for me to see the poverty that exists in Mexico and to understand the fate of a lot of other people. And uh, on, I suppose it's significant that on the way to Mexico, remember I was 13, the year was 1961. Um, our group of 45 kids and our counselors stopped to get uh, gas at a gas station and we saw the bathroom signs which said um, men white, women white, and colored. And I went into the bathroom that said colored and I walked out and then I put a sign on the door um, saying we were born together, we got democracy together, we lived together. And, and a woman stopped, I can still picture her Edsel. Uh, you know what an Edsel yes. is? I, she stopped in her Edsel, she saw my sign, she saw that there were 45 people there, and she called the police and said there was a race riot. And the next thing I knew, I had a very angry Texas sheriff holding the sign up saying, who wrote this? And I started to lunge forward and say I did, but the man running the trip, the Reverend Udemul, put his hand over my mouth and went over and talked with the cop and calmed things down and said to me afterwards, I'm Sorry, Nikki, that I had to stop you from identifying yourself, but it would have been hard to call your parents on day four of our trip to Mexico and say that you were in a jail in Texas. And that's what could have happened. So that was... Um, so again, that sign, I, I love the sign. So what did it say again? I, it said, <laughs> it's funny, I do remember it very clearly. I wrote it on a piece of cardboard. We were born together, we got democracy together, we'll live together. Seems very adolescent to me, but... Had that always been just, even in Connecticut growing up, I mean, were you, were you the kid that was not afraid to speak up? Were, I was you talk about kid, being observant. I was the kid who was not afraid to speak up. I spoke my mind about most everything. And so you said your your parent, you had a, a painter and a printer? Yes, mother, mother was um, a very good painter and my father had a printing company. Look, where do you think that came from in you? Because the first thing I would think would be, you know, all the creatives that I've known in my life in that regard are in, in their world, right? They're, they're not maybe, like their, their reflection is through their art, maybe not through their words in that matter. So where do you think you got that? My, my mother was an outspoken, very funny, very liberated woman. Um, elegant uh, in every sense of the word. Um, skillful as a painter, skillful as a golfer. 
um, and and fairly left wing in her politics, or very left wing in her politics. My father was much more soft spoken, but a man of absolutely rigorous beliefs. Um, he had been brought up in an Orthodox Jewish family and rebelled against it completely because he felt that all the emphasis on rules wasn't going to. So he was outspoken in that regard. He was soft-spoken, but a man of absolute beliefs, um, and probably the first person to hire a black executive um, in the community. All right, so he was a soft-spoken, but principled. Totally principled. Um, I, I mean, you've got me talking about a lot of things I didn't expect to talk about, which is perfectly fine because it all relates to race. So my parents, I mean, I'm slightly embarrassed to admit this, but most of the black people I met in early childhood worked in people's houses. Uh, and my parents had a black living housekeeper. And I remember one morning at breakfast, Dad was reading the sports pages, I was reading the comics, it was always like that in the morning. And Lucy, the housekeeper, came in and said, oh, I'm so proud of you, Mr. Weber. And he said, thank you, Lucy. Mrs. Weber told me what happened last night. And I said, Dad, what happened? He said, well, it was the Fox Press Christmas party. And unfortunately, Nikki, the um, black employees all chose to be seated together, but that was fine. That's what they wanted. But Lou, the foreman, I remember him well, went over and began imitating their way of speaking. So I jumped up, and the next thing Dad knew was that Lou had called him something like, you fancy Jew or something like that, and they they ended up going at each other with right hooks. So, so, so Dad had he jumped up, slugged the guy. He did. Then I remember asking my father what he was going to do, and he said, "I'll fire him, Nicky. We don't, we can't tolerate prejudice." This is 1955. I was eight. I might have said I was ten, but I remember that incident quite clearly. You know, my father was an early admirer of Martin Luther King. My parents were you know, devoted to John Kennedy and, and his values. Um, and I'm very much of that generation. And how do you see that play out in your work today? I'll Good tell sure. you, since, since you've got me going in a way that I'm quite enjoying, I had a wonderful experience once. It was 1978. My wife and I had gone to the ballet with Jackie Onassis and Caroline, uh, her daughter, and two other people. And at intermission, Jackie asked us if we wanted to go for a walk outside. It was a hot summer evening. And she knew that when she went outside, people would see her. I mean, there was no way that she wasn't noticed. She was incredibly beautiful looking. And I remember that 
I bought her an ice cream cone and coming from a very poor family on my father's side, I thought, wouldn't Grandpa Dave be amused to see me shelling out $2.50 for an ice cream cone for one of the richest women in the world? And we were walking along, eating our ice cream cones, me characteristically disagreeing with the premise of a book she was publishing. She had sent me the galleys. And just as we were talking, a tall black man came up to us and said, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I don't know whether he said Mrs. Onassis or Mrs. Kennedy, but he said, but you cannot imagine what you and your husband did for our people. Would you be willing to sign my opera program? She looked at him and I think I know the difference between empathy, real compassion, and the phoniness of noblesse oblige. And she was the real, she was the real deal. She could imagine what it was like to be um, born in a very, under very different circumstances. So in that moment, I mean, that, that, that feels like a painting. It feels like a scene in a movie, right? Yes. Like you're witnessing history. Yes. So what was the impact on you individually and you and your wife? Together? I would say it would, my wife is from a not dissimilar background to mine. And that, this is gonna, may sound trite. We were brought up to believe that everyone's equal. And what has driven me in Senegal is the unfairness and happenstance of lack of equality, lack of equality in what's available to you, um, of material well-being, and so on. So having grown up not in what we would call a rich family, certainly not by Forbes standards, um, just an upper middle class family. There was enough of everything. Um, and my parents could afford to send my sister and me to college. But, you know, we were people who always needed summer jobs and it wasn't just in theory. And, um, but when I first came here, it just didn't seem reasonable to me that certain things were the way that they were. So at Tambacunda Hospital, from the first time I went there, I thought, dear God, why do people have to be treated in a hospital like, like this? That place was falling apart. And is this the hospital with the lights that were from the refrigerator for the incubator? Yes. Right. Yeah, you've, you've really, you've done, You've done your research. I'm very, I mean, that's very exciting for me because I don't have to start at point zero with you. I'm one visit there, and it might have been just after my first grandson was born, I saw one of those makeshift incubators, and we sent to Dakar for a, an incubator to replace it immediately. But that led to my conversation with the director of the hospital, a wonderful woman, sort of, where I said, well, what can we do? And we worked out that we could build a new building that would be 
I think maybe we had the idea of a maternity unit, and then she said that the maternity unit and the pediatric unit really should go together um, because um, the way that that was just a natural thing that children would often go directly um, from maternity to pediatrics and so on, so that we should do one building for both. And it's now called the Pôle Mère et Enfant, Mother and Child. And so we set about having an architectural competition. You probably know all that already. Well, no, please. It would you, just because I did the background to be here in descent, like I can't wait for all of that. Because what's fascinating about the architectural competition is that I think it's incredibly, see, the word strategic to me does it a disservice. It's not about a strategy, but I think it's about also understanding the power of what drives people and their passions. Is that fair? Absolutely. And so I asked everyone who might be able to advise whether it was architectural critics design curators, um, you know, who are the architects who might possibly be good for this project? And the director of design at the Museum of Modern Art named Manuel Hertz. And there are other names that I just knew already. I mean, I would was willing to go to anyone. We would have taken any submissions. But I wrote a letter to anybody who was applying saying, this is to ask you to participate in the competition to design a building where you will be building under extremely difficult conditions. You will probably make less money than you would if you built a pool house for someone in East Hampton. You cannot count on making any significant profit and you'll have to build um, with economy in mind, but I can assure you, you will never have to endure a lunch with boring clients. You know, what architect client. hasn't had to put up with <laughs> a boring, rich, self-important client? <laughs> Manuel Hertz wasn't willing to submit a design because he said he had to know more about the site and the situation. So we, we traveled here together. He researched materials, temperature, a lot about the society. But by then we'd already commissioned two brilliant buildings from Toshiko Mori. But when I say, Rod, that things just happened, I had arranged an Albers show for an Albers show to take place at the Cooper Hewitt Museum. I did it because I was desperate to have the Alberts' design work known, and I found out that there had been a cancellation of another show, and I knew that we could offer a show where they could borrow everything from two or three sources and have a fabulous show. They hired an architect who would be good at putting Bauhaus artists in that very, very fancy space on Fifth Avenue, and who was good at presenting textiles, it was Toshiko Mori. Once I began the work in Senegal, and it was at that, the end of that first trip that I said, we'll find some American money for you. I talked to anyone I could about what we were doing because I just thought it was a lot of bang for the buck. I know enough to know when 
the person to whom I'm speaking is not interested. Toshiko fastened her attention on me, wanted to hear all about the work in Senegal, and she was teaching um, architecture at the Harvard School of Design and decided to make a seminar project, the design of artist studios in Senegal, um, brought her students here, which was a tenacious thing to do, put me on the architectural jury, and that led to the wonderful idea that became Thread. And then, I'm jumping around chronologically, we were working at a, in the village of Sintian um, at a medical center. That's the village where we built Thread. The local doctor wanted me to see a medical center he had built on the far side of the Gambia River. So in a wooden dugout canoe um, with my older daughter with me and several colleagues, we crossed the river. I have such a memory of the very tall Senegalese doctor and my rather short, very pretty daughter and he was carrying her Jimmy Choo bag across the river, which somehow to me was sort of a classic family moment, if you will. Um, but that day I saw a medical center that had been built for 1800 euros. And it was small and simple. But I said to the doctor, Mageba, this is great, but wouldn't it be better if you had electricity and running water? Seems unfortunate to have a medical center where you have neither one. And so our they function ju water. just by having nurses there, bandages and medication, and the ability at least to diagnose things but they couldn't do much in the way of treatment, although they could have some sort of, you know, a couple of stretcher beds. And so our foundation funded putting in of a solar operated battery and everything needed to get the place up and running with electricity and running water. And then we paid for the most modest maternity unit. And then I decided that I wanted to spend my 65th birthday in Senegal, and that was December of 2012. And they asked me if they could name the maternity unit for me. I said, no, I'm sorry, I really would not like that. Then it occurred to me that I would be very touched if they would name it for my parents. So on that December day, I crossed the river in a canoe, and on the other side of the Gambia River, which has crocodiles and hippos in it, there were about 50 teenage kids, all wearing T-shirts that said, the Saul and Caroline Fox Weber Maternité, with the most wonderful picture of mother and dad. It was actually taken at a 
black tie opening of the Albers show at the Guggenheim in New York. They dedicated the unit, and at lunch that day, um, the local imam, the re religious leader of the village, asked me if we could build a school in the village. I said, well, I would love to, let me see about the money and so on. Then there were some reasons that it got put on hold. Then about three years later, I saw the imam again, and he asked me, what about the school? And when I say he asked me, um, he didn't speak English or French, but mainly spoke Pular in Arabic. Now, communicating wasn't easy, but we managed with interpreters, gestures, a few words in common. And we decided to pursue the idea of the school, but in a Muslim village, we needed approval of the Marab, not the Marabu, the Caliph, the grand sort of priest of the entire region of Medina Gunas. We met with him. I remember it was beastly hot um, in, in a concrete bunker of sorts. About a hundred Muslim men present, no women. Um, three hours of conversation where other people sort of represented our case. And then I came forward and said, we'd like to build a school. And I, this clearly, I was speaking French, which was then translated into Pular. But I said for girls and boys, where they would learn to read and write, so on. Now, I knew that when I said the word fee before saying a garçon, that that could be the kiss of death to the project. We would not have financed a school for boys only. And that was about our only stipulation. And the caliph, after this whole meeting, said, came back to me through a translator, il faut en réfléchir, we have to think about it. And when we left that meeting, the local imam from the village of Fas said, that means no. And the doctor with whom I work, Mage Bas, said, that means it's still alive. And there was about two years of negotiating. And I pretty much pursued the caliph when he visited France. I went to the city of Rouen to meet with him. Meeting with him meant a three-minute conversation with his car window rolled down. This man had something absolutely beautiful about him. I'm, I swear, if I'm not a classically religious person, but I felt as if he were connected with some higher power. Um, I was convinced that as he and I talked, we understood that we had the same goal, which is for children to have a chance for them to be educated and learn how to read and write and not have their lives kept, you know, within a small village forever. And eventually he granted permission. I mean, the stages of those negotiations were not to be believed. And I'd been told by experts in Paris that it would never happen. 
and the head of education for the region, state education, said it will never happen. They, they don't want schools teaching English and French in the region. That invoked the 13-year-old in you and the sign in Mexico? Of course, delivered it in a much more refined manner. Maybe it did. Maybe that 13-year-old, I mean, that 13-year-old has always been there. Uh, and I still have skin problems, you see, so that's... So, if, if you don't mind, if the, the original meeting that you had, when you brought it up, when you presented it, you, yes. when you use, when you, when you mentioned feet, yes. describe the room. It's a compound in the city of Tambacunda that can be reached so that the religious people don't have to pass anywhere where liquor is sold. Um, and I remember going through courtyard after courtyard and, and just seeing hundreds of men in robes. I was with a colleague. We were certainly the only white people there. And one antechamber led to another antechamber to another antechamber. It was very dusty. There were, I have an impression of carpets all around. The building was essentially rough concrete. And then finally, and everyone I looked at, I thought that must be the Caliph, because there were a lot of very, very imposing looking men in robes, very lavish robes. And then an elderly man was ushered in, and that was the Caliph. How I felt inside, there are plenty of times in my life that I've had shallow breathing because I was worried about something. I felt totally relaxed. You did. I felt totally relaxed. I don't know why. Um, I can't explain it. Yesterday, I was in a social situation where I did not feel relaxed. Um, I, I don't know what the ingredients are that can make one thing or the other happen. But in that moment, in that moment, I felt very relaxed, and I knew what I was going to say in French, and I knew the tone of voice that I wanted to say it in. Tone of voice was very important in my upbringing, um, and I wanted him to realize I had no ulterior motive. I mean, my motive was a belief that. Children should learn to read and write. Thus was, I may be repeating myself, a village that had virtually 100% illiteracy. People, 100%, people knew the Quranic prayers. So, no, I mean, no one could read or write French or Pular. Was this learned over time, or do you feel like it was being sort of immersed in the culture that? But I would imagine that regardless of, of the knowledge that one gains and maybe what we would call the traditional West, that in that moment, it's useless to, or is it helpful? Because you talked about how calm you were. You, there was no shallow breathing, right? It's no. the tone of voice, though, because, so that tells me that you were very thoughtful about it. You, did, you didn't just walk into a situation. No, I knew 
what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. Um, and I hope that I was conveying the message that the reason for it was so that children could learn to read and write, period. I mean, also, well, now they have many other advantages of going to school because in the course of our negotiations, we, we agreed, I love the sound of the call to prayer, which is what you're yeah, beginning. I've never, I've never been anywhere, I've only seen that on TV. And at what time is that? It happens five local time. Seven in the morning is the first time I heard it today. And, um, is it? But it's like clockwork, is it not? Yeah, it is. And I can't answer the question as to what the exact times are. We were talking about negotiation and, and that just... Do you let, let, it, let everything you know about your upbringing in the United States almost go and just read the energy in the room? No, because my upbringing in the United States... I went to an all-boys school uh, for high school. It's sort of good enough private school. There was one black student among 450 boys when I entered. There were about three by the time I was graduated. Um, but I remember the headmaster saying during exam time, boys, I have one word of advice to you during exam time. Study, study, study. And when you get tired of studying, grind. 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 And I think I have, I think that part of my upbringing was very important because I went into that meeting knowing, memorize what it is that you have to say do your utmost to make it work. No letting your attention span, attention wander or anything like that. Um, look them in the eyes. Um, so, I mean, my Western upbringing did me well in, in a certain respect. I remember, and at that same boys school, the great civil rights minister, William Sloan Coffin, gave a talk, must have been my sophomore junior year, and made a great impression on all of us. He wanted one of the kids from segregated towns to know that they were from segregated towns. One of one of the facts laid clear. The irony is now we're we're debating critical race theory in US education. What are we actually going to teach? You know, I live in a state where we, not we, people, factions have now submitted for, to ban books. And the four books of the state of Tennessee, Nick, yeah. they only address black and brown kids or figures. Well, is this? Well, and it's 2022. And it's where Mouse was banned, yes. right? Yes. Yes. I love your line of questioning because you're. You're, you're putting the pieces together, probably. I think it's the story. It's the, it's the humanity behind it. It's, and I don't know if it's 
my own sense of justice, being married to a strong woman, having a, a seven-year-old daughter who is incredibly strong, and thinking about what my daughter has access to, and what that program does for young women. How did that come about? Was that another sort of happy accident? Or that was created because a local woman in Tamba named Constance Mabey was approached by a village girl who ran away from home, who didn't want to marry at age 12. And she got to Constance, who had to negotiate with the girl's parents to allow the girl to live with her and her daughter in Tambacunda and continue and have high school education. Then more girls wanted to do that. And then Constance met the head of Le Kinkaliba and they decided to create the foyer. This is all before my getting there. And I saw it and discovered this beautiful looking, you'll see it, lovely place with a dynamic director. She wasn't yet there. I mean, there have been many stages of the foyer. I, I couldn't get over the joy of the place and of these young women able to continue high school. Um, I found a couple friends in America to contribute generous amounts of money to help with some building there. I've seen the management of the foyer go through many ups and downs. Um, nonprofits are not without their problems, as you know, and without their politics. And four or five years ago, that the foyer was in dire financial straits, and we got involved. And I'll tell you, an old friend of mine, about four months ago, had her foundation give us $75,000, which will help for, it's almost half the operating expense of the foyer for the upcoming year. And it's life-saving for us because we pay for everything, food, salaries, whatever it is, so that the girls can be there. The, the event two days ago, which many videos were made, was just thrilling. I did not know I was going to give a discours, a talk, but then I heard it announced. So I had to get up and wing it in French, and I um, mainly told the girls that there had already been a lot of praise for what the Corsa does, that they're always with us in our hearts, that they should know that whether the rest of our organization, whether we're in Paris or America or wherever we are, we're thinking of them and have faith in them. And um, then I talked about their dynamic leader, and I said that in my whole life I'd rarely met anyone as passionate and intelligent and devoted to people and the girls cheered wildly 
And then I said that I come from a family of strong women, the same thing that you said. And first thing I said was that my wife was a published novelist. They applauded, referred to one of my daughters being a psychotherapist, having a book coming out, the other doing her work with the Albers Foundation and so on. Um, and finally, I, it was totally impromptu. I didn't know what I was going to say. And then suddenly I looked at this group of 60 or so girls because the rest of them were behind me getting ready to do some traditional dances. And I looked at them and I said, Vous êtes le futur du monde. You're the future of the world. And that's really what I felt looking at these animated, bright women. My wonderful friend Alan Riding, who was cultural correspondent for the Times in Europe for many, many years, um, had given a writing class that day and had the girls working on poetry. And two of the girls ended up in tears reading their own poems because of the stories that they were recounting. But just amazing to see so much joy. How has the collective experience for you changed your perspective of your home country? Is there, you know, when we see people fighting over things that seem absolutely superficial compared to the types of challenges that you and the foundation and your colleagues are facing and taking on? tell you one of my worst problems, and I should be very careful about what I say here, has to do with the government of this country. Um, because we're doing what they should be doing. My own country, like everywhere else in the world, there are some very decent people doing great things with other people in mind. There's a level of sheer decadence and selfishness and hedonism that seems boundless. I'm very aware also of people my own age. Um, a lot of people find it very challenging to be in their 70s. And I find it challenging in certain ways, but when you're doing something you absolutely love doing, and you have so much more that you have to do to make it work, um, it, it gives you a great feeling. And when I look at, you know, the friends of mine who, do you still do this? Do you still do that? It's a little scary. Purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about what, what is still left to be done. I was on the phone with my younger daughter this morning, and I referred to a cleaning lady at the hotel we stay at in Tambacunda. She knows the cleaning lady because she's been in that hotel with me. The cleaning lady's daughter has played with my grandson. The cleaning lady always asks for Wilder, refers to him as Wawa. And I said to Charlotte that she'd injured her hip, was not going to be able to work anymore, sent her daughter and other children to her sister in the town of Kolda, and asked me if I could help 
knowing that I would never see her again because she's going to have to leave her job in Tambacunda. And I confess to, I wasn't really confess, but it's nothing I've talked about with anyone, anyone else except now with you, that I'd given the woman a hundred, a hundred thousand sifa, which is about the equivalent of two hundred dollars. And I said, the the woman wept, and the last thing I wanted was for the woman to feel beholden to me. But I then said to Charlotte, you know, half the price of a cashmere sweater. <laughs> you could call me a complete hypocrite because I have paid that much for cashmere sweaters or bought them for, you know, my wife or, or kids. And I, I would be being a complete phony or a complete hypocrite if I said that I'd sacrificed a whole lot of my own life to do what we do. Um, but you asked what we need or what's still to be done. There's a great deal to be done. For one thing, we have a fantastic organization, fantastic programs, and they all need to outlive me. And while I'm around to steer things and I'm running the Albers Foundation and running the Corsa, um, this is all going swimmingly. Um, but we need to build up a very serious endowment. I have wonderful staff. I have the human power to keep it all going. Um, but we need the money to be able to back it up. And then a reasonable person to make decisions about how the money is spent. But I, those people exist within our organization. Following the hospital opening, a very distinguished doctor from Dakar asked me if we could do a new building at his hospital. And boy, do I want to say yes. I mean, I know his hospital. They need a new building, desperately. And when we talk about a new building, you know that in Nashville or anywhere else, if, if you have a hospital, costs a million dollars to create a utility closet. I mean, you know, the capital campaigns are 200, 300 million. We built Tombacunda Hospital for $2.2 million, which was a lot of money for us, but in the global sense, it's not a lot of money for, for what we get. Now in Tombacunda, the average family's yearly income is about 500 euros per year, per family, mainly from the sale of rice and corn. The way of life, people live without electricity or running water at home. It's, it's, it's not easy. But I would just, I feel as if I should know someone where I could say, you know, if you would fund an, ex an extension at Vaughn Hospital in Dakar for a million dollars, it would 
change thousands of lives every single day and make those lives so much better. And I can assure you, you will have a wonderful time doing it. You'll have a wonderful time getting involved in the design, hearing what the design should be, not imposing a design, but hearing it from the people who were there. And you'll encounter marvelous, dedicated people. My God, the number of people I meet in Senegal who are giving of themselves all the time. I sat next to the head of the Parents Association of the foyer. Um, he's been there for years. He's He doesn't have money by our standards. He devotes himself to this place um, without complaint. The director, the doctors, they're so dedicated. And that's what I miss in the place where I come from. That's what I miss at home, is that pure dedication to the well-being of other people, which is all over the place here. It's like it's in the local ethos. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. I'm, no, no, I'm, it, it, it all ties together. Let's talk about succession planning, as you alluded to. And I'll give you a frame, if you don't mind. Let's take the frame. I know this is maybe a loose association, but it's definitely for, let's say, Western <clears throat> audiences. But if you think of yourself like an entrepreneur, right. just in the practical sense of piecing together and a stair-step in, what advice, when you, when you sort of get down to it, whatever that succession plan looks like, what is the advice you think that you will lay out for your successor? Well, first of all, we need to secure the finances. That's a very practical but essential thing to do. Advice would be, I suppose, to function the way that we function, which is not with flowcharts, studies, or a lot of research. Listen to what people say they need and go with your heart. You know, I've approached all the big foundations in America for support. You can provide 50 pages of paperwork. And I would have appreciated it if after we worked for six weeks to an application to the Gates Foundation, they had done better than responding electronically within a few hours saying, we don't support um, we only support research. We don't support the sort of things you're doing. We can't afford research. When a child is dying of malaria in front of you, you have to act. You know, you forget the theories about it. And I mean, it would be marvelous to have anti-malaria medication, to have anti-malaria vaccine and everything else. But at the moment, you, you don't do research any more than if your own child comes to you in need of something. You, you look it up in a, mag, in, a, in a book. You just jump in and do what you can do. Do you find that with a lot of foundations? Uh, yes, I did. I, found, I find that I'm pretty tired of the foundations where people sit on pigskin chairs and absolutely beautiful headquarters 
are appalled by the idea of traveling in rural Africa, um, have theories about everything, talk the theories, and are missing the chance to travel with a duffel bag full of toothbrushes. It's the best I can, the best way I can, I can put it. I, it's not tactful of me to say, um, but I'm I'm impatient. I, my theory in part is act as if the person speaking to you is a member of your own family um, and respond accordingly. The argument I just cannot bear is if I did it for you, I'd have to do it for everyone. <laughs> this becomes an excuse to do nothing. Talk about the response you get for those foundations or those individuals that are not in the ivory tower. How different is it when you get an organization, a group of people that understand the practicality of what you're doing, the day-to-day, -day, the responsive nature, as opposed to this sort of ethereal right, path? Well, we've had a few great loyal supporters, and they give money. Like this friend of mine I referred to, giving $75,000 to the foyer. She gets it, totally. Not insignificantly to me, by the way, but it may be, you guys are different generations from me, but do you know the name Danny Kay? Yes, I do, yeah. Do you we're, know the name? three, it's, three it's generations. Yeah, right. yes. yes. This is Danny Kay's daughter, who's my friend who gave so generously to the foyer. And it's the spirit that we all saw in Danny Kay. You know, you know, just wonderful. She and I knew each, known each other since we were eight. We went to the same summer camp where these same values were instilled. So when we crossed the, the Gambia River on Thursday, you talked about hippos and gators. You won't see them. Yeah, well. You won't see them. I just say that to be dramatic. I have, I've seen hippos in that river, but at a considerable distance, not in the place where you're crossing. So when you're crossing, are you on a like, What's the crossing? Well, the other day, people just walked across because the water was so low. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. The one thing I would say is don't swim because you don't. I have swum across, and then I was advised not to because of the chance of getting a bacteria that you'd rather avoid. So take me back to when you first met Joseph and Anne. Um, because I, I have a sense that it was far more impactful than just a little sentence in the bio. Hmm. There's something about you that they connected with and vice versa. I've told you how things just happen. I was in college at Columbia College in New York, working at Tamarack Tennis Camp in New Hampshire during the summers. I fell for a girl. She did not fall for me. It happens. It was a trust fall that did it not work. It was one of those, um, you, you're, you're a nice guy, bud, or one of those. It's not you, it's me. You know, can't we just be friends? Um, but she took me to meet her mother and father who had worked by the Alberses. 
beautiful, beautiful work that I fell in love with. And her parents thought that I was a catch, which was the kiss of death to yeah, any yeah. chance of a romance with the girl. But I was at Yale Graduate School when her mother took me to meet um, Annie and Joseph. And I well remember the day because I'd put on my one clean pair of corduroys and a nice shirt for meeting these people from the Bauhaus. And my MG would not start. So I had to get underneath it and hammer the fuel pump with a rock. And I arrived with Ruth Agus, my friend's mother, um, and my pants were covered with grease. And Joseph Albers, without even saying hello to me, said, what do you do, boy? And I said, I'm studying art history at Yale, sir. Do you like it, boy? Well, I knew Joseph was not someone with whom I wanted to dissemble, but nor did I want to lose my full fellowship at Yale. I needed the money and everything else. I didn't know his connection with the university. But when he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm studying art history at Yale, sir. He said, do you like it, boy? And I said, not really, sir. Why not, boy? Well, they have me in a library basement studying gaslighting fixtures in 19th century France. And when I wanted to talk with my professor about how Seurat painted and used color, he said, this is not a course about painting. It's a course about iconography. And Albers said to me, this I like, boy. Which of those bastards in art history don't you like? <laughs> Put his hand on my shoulder. And then he said, what does your father do? Well, I wanted to tell him my mother was a painter, but I could tell that this was someone for whom the um, paternal line mattered more. And I said, my father's a printer, sir. Good boy, then you're not just an art historian. Then you know something about something. Annie had not yet opened her mouth, but she was smiling at me so beautifully. And that was the beginning of a wonderful, wonderful friendship. Um, I started to write a book about Annie Albers. I would visit them all the time. Joseph had very little nostalgia except for the foods of his childhood. And I knew of a wonderful German food shop, and I could get very good Schwarzbrot, which he loved, something called Rheinische Apfelkraut. I don't know if you've ever had it. You have? Yeah. And, and very good Westphalian ham, liverwurst, smoked eel for Annie, all those things. Even German-style potato salad, which they were obsessed with. Yes. <laughs> so it was bringing those foods and the buildup of just a very easy and wonderful friendship. I would drive them anywhere I could and so on. Um, as long as the fuel pump was working, right? As long as the fuel pump was working, <laughs> yeah. We drive... <laughs> I did once drive Annie in my MG, come to think of it. And Joseph thought it was an MGBGT, that the back was perfectly designed for putting an homage to the square down. 
Talk about the, the conversation when it came to um, their foundation, just when the friendship became formal. I don't even know that maybe the wrong choice. Well, the friendship. The trust that had to have been there. You see, I was seeing them all the time, doing what I could. I was working technically for my father, who was more than happy to de- for me to devote almost half my time to the Alberses. And Annie Albers made some prints at our company. We worked on them together. And Dad was excited about that. Then 1976, Joseph died. There were only eight of us at his funeral. Uh, Eventually, there was a big memorial service. But Annie did not want a lot of people around. And she lived very privately. And his lawyer, who had started the foundation with him, a man named Lee Eastman, asked me that day if I could help Annie out officially starting on Monday. And I began working officially part-time, $14,000 a year, to help her do everything, which meant really mainly settling the estate because there were a lot of paintings um, in the warehouse and a lot a lot to do. What was it like when he passed? How did that impact you or affect you? <laughs> you? You are getting you are getting the real deal out of me. Um, until Joseph died I still thought there might be a chance that no one had to die. He struck me as, he was so youthful and vigorous and alive, showed no signs of ill health up to his 88th birthday. And I thought maybe he could prove that if you keep on working and maybe if you just keep on, you don't have to die. But when Joseph died, I I realized that there, I realized that there was no getting around it, um, and it happens to everyone. But that was the real the, the real impact. When did you know you had a talent for what you're doing now? I mean, yes, you started on Monday. He was settling the estate, but at what point did you? You very easily could have just been an incredible extension of the family, right? And and related on that, yes. Sense, but there was a different path or different layer that was exposed or revealed. The one thing I knew was that I am passionate for looking at artworks, and that it fills me with pleasure. And when I first knew that, was probably when I was, when I wasn't that conscious of it, but when I was. Five years old, my parents acquired a Matisse tapestry that hung in the front hall of the house. Now, it wasn't, it cost $100. It was part of an addition. But my friends made fun of it. And in abstract forms, big colorful thing. And I defended it and felt an incredible sense of joy from it. And then, When I was 10, my mother won a prize at an exhibition at the local museum called the Wadsworth Athenaeum. And I went there with 
my parents to the opening of the show where she won the prize. And I wasn't very happy to be there. I was the only kid and all these grown-ups, and they were eating crustless tea sandwiches, which I thought were a very bad idea. And I asked my father if I could go upstairs in the museum. Sure, Nicky. And about 15 minutes later, I came down and I said, Daddy, there's something you have to see. Come up with me. My father came up and I said, you see that painting? I love it as much as I love going to mountaintops and skiing, which were my passions. And my father said, very good, Nikki. That's by an artist called Mondrian. And um, mommy and I have a book about his work at home, if you want to look at it. And my father was extraordinary because in 1957, not many fathers would have reacted that way. Many of them would have said, you know, that's nonsense or something like that. But that he, that he knew what a Mondrian was and encouraged me was exceptional. But I have just finished, after 12 years, I've recently handed in to my publisher the biography of Mondrian. So full circle, full circle, isn't it? I mean, there's. I mean, I hope I have some time left, but it's. Um, well, full circle on that story. Surely yes, the yeah. <laughs> sure it's full circle on that, and surely. The last big biography I'll write. I mean, I know that. I'm not going to undertake another six-year or ten-year biography. I've done so several of them. So I ask this only because you brought it up when, when Joseph passed. What is your sense of your own mortality? My sense of <laughs> my own mortality, that's another one where there's something about you, where I'm going to give you the longer answer rather than the shorter one. Um, definitely something that affected me about, I, I had a very best friend also named Nick, six years older than I, an architect. And we played squash and tennis together all the time. But he was also the friend I could talk to about anything. We traveled together, we went to the Bauhaus together, we came to Senegal together. A few months after our trip to Senegal, we were playing tennis, and it was 6-6, six, six, and I knew he had to get back to his office. I, in theory, had to get back to work, but I said, do you want to, um, have a tiebreaker or should we stop now? And he said, such a beautiful day, let's keep playing. He was winning 7-6 when I went to get a ball at the back of the court. And I looked at him and he was lying down at the net. And I thought, oh, he must have tripped. And I shouted out, Nick, he didn't answer, Nick. And I went running up and he made, I thought he was imitating someone snoring. But that was, those were his last breaths. And he died right there. And I mean, I tried to resuscitate him every, every way. That made me have the sense that I could, you can die anytime, unexpected. Cardiac health, all of which have 
been resolved, but my heart's a little bit like an old car engine where you replace one part and then you need to replace another. So my sense is that I feel, you know, healthy and youthful, but that death is a reality. And I'm, we've now got a chief operating officer of the combined Albers Foundation, La Corsa, with the hope that, um, you know, when I die, he won't, I mean, the, they, they will each have their own directors, but that he'll be able to help oversee the financing and the coordinating and so on. I have no reason to think I'll die especially soon, but I've also, I was in an earthquake where 17,000 people died within a five mile radius of where I was. I mean, you know, things happen. So, so I like being, I, I like trying to have things in order. What I do, I do know that when I was walking with my wife to a hospital in New York where I was about to have ablations, cardiac ablation surgery, I said to her, look, not that I want to die, but if I don't survive this, just make sure it doesn't change the lives of those 142 women at the foyer de jeunes filles. You know, that's my sense. And the reality is I've, we, I still have my work cut out for me financially. Um, so how, how does your friend Nick passing away in front of you? That, that, that's not something that a calendar can smooth over. No. I would think it almost changed, it permanently can change your DNA. Probably did. Also because I reacted the way one has to react in a crisis, which is that I, first thing I had to do was telephone his wife. It happens that she's someone whose parents were friends of my parents, so it was easier for her if it had to happen, that at least it happened with someone who sort of seemed very familiar. Spent the afternoon in the hospital in what's called the bereavement room with his body still in tennis whites. Uh, and um, I had to, I couldn't worry about myself. I was with his wife. We had to notify his sons. There were many people whose feelings were more important than my own. And so I didn't allow myself to have it. I'm, I'm not sure it's ever totally registered. I do dream about him a lot. You do? Yeah. And he's almost, he's always recovered. Oh, sorry, but not. Are you playing? The, Is there an activity in the dream? Is it, no, he's recovered. Um, but not fully, and I don't know, I didn't understand something he didn't understand, so it's all sort of confused. Um, that, yeah, probably did change my DNA forever, but it certainly, you know, my wife and I are people who always make sure our wills are updated when we have little kids. 
was very important. We got wiped out going to the movies and they were home with the babysitter. We didn't want them going to the wrong relatives. Things, things like that. I think death is an under-discussed subject for most people because it's, you know, it's, it interests me enormously to be in a culture here where people believe that you don't die the way that some of us think that you die. Um, and, and a lot happens with the soul. Um, we've gone to amazing megaliths here um, where the, some people feel the soul emanates from them. Um, I've been in uh, burial mounds where people were buried in their entire little huts as if you could stay in your house and be buried. I mean, quite amazingly different attitudes. Um, so, I mean, I... Like most people, I hate the idea of death, but um, on the other hand, my wife and I can discuss where we want our ashes thrown, and that's how, how we feel. So with regard to all this work, it concerns me greatly. Um, just wanting to make sure that it is, I feel that it's secured once the financing is secured. But we love to be able to do more. I mean, when this... What would you do if you had a blank check? I know that's so... If cliche. I had a blank check, I'd be... I, I dream of this. If I had a blank check, um, I would invest it so solidly that it guaranteed the income that it takes to continue running indefinitely what we're doing here. Thank you for joining me on the shores of Senegal in the capital city of Dakar for an intimate portrait on a rooftop with a man not driven by personal achievements, but rather in the accomplishments of others. I encourage you to explore even further into the efforts of La Corsa and that of Nicholas Fox Weber by going to aflk.org.